0: All right, good morning. Good morning. morning. Um, You may not know my mom. She shows up about twice a year to Village Church, and uh, she was the first fueling to become a Christian. Her maiden name is Baxter. There, as far as we know, there was no heritage or lineage of Baxter's who believed in Jesus Christ. Um, And she was the first fueling. Uh, There are no um, Christian ancestors that we're aware of on my dad's side of the family. And when I was about four years old, our neighbor across the street, Mrs. Hogren, um, shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with her, told her that you are not saved by being good. Jesus was good for you. And uh, as a Roman Catholic, that shattered her worldview, and she thought her whole life she had to accumulate good works through sacraments, and, and to have the pressure taken off of her was like this, this pressure valve that was just released, and it changed her entire life. Um, the same woman, Mrs. Hogren, across the street, I was four years old, um, told me um, that God loved me and that I could go to heaven by believing in Jesus. First time I'd ever heard the gospel, and I believed, and I, I want to be really clear with you. I am um, here today in large part because my mom fought for my faith. She got on her knees and prayed. Um, She taught me scripture over and over again. Uh, she intervened into every major moment of my life and brought God's word into it. Um, kindergarten, I remember every day after kindergarten, half day, um, we would, uh, she would read me books, read me Bible stories. She, re- she read me The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. She says she never read that dark of a book to a, to a five-year-old, but she did. I would like to go on record. She does listen. And, um, and so, But she filled my life with God's word and stories of God's word. Her best friend, Mrs. Schwartz, um, also uh, became a Christian. Mrs. Schwartz and my mom did Bible studies with myself and her daughter, Liz, who's about two years younger than me. And uh, they fought for us. They fought for us through prayer, through intervention, through talking. Um, it was uh, an incredibly difficult fight for my mom to raise four boys and to fight for their faith when my dad, really of no fault of his own, but didn't come to faith until I was in eighth grade. And so she had all of these boys running throughout her home, and uh, she was trying to figure out all this stuff on her own. I want, I want to be clear. My mom didn't have all the answers. Um, she did not know everything. She was not a, um, a theology student. She was a normal mom who came to grips with the purity of the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ, fell in love with God, was saved. And then she went out and she actually got the answers that she needed for all the questions I was bringing home to her. Now, what you may not know about me is that I grew up going to Catholic school and a Protestant church, conservative Presbyterian church. Catholic school, if you're not aware, the two are really, really different. Even though our pastor wore a robe, they had very little in common with each other. And so I grew up in this world, and uh, my mom was smart enough to teach me one, I think, just core lesson that guided me all throughout my battles and my fights with my religion teachers. She said, all right, everybody, if, if they're Protestant or Catholic, here's what we know that they believe. We know that they believe that the Bible is God's word, and it's true. So if they teach you something, at least should be consistent with the Bible. And the other thing she taught me that guided me throughout every single religion class in our Catholic school was, um, you are not saved by being good. Jesus was good for you. You're saved by believing in Jesus. These two messages guided me. Um, I remember in ninth grade, Father Donahue's class, and uh, he was this rickety old man. And uh, he he was a very funny guy. But so one day he gets up in class and he writes, faith equals works, or sorry, salvation equals faith plus works. And uh, of course said, uh, excuse me, Father finally down on her, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for it is by grace through faith, not by works that you are saved, so that no man may boast. Mr. Vueling, get into the hallway. Takes me out of the hallway, and he says, and I think he was halfway in jest, and halfway in not, I'll never forget it. Your mother was a pagan, your brothers were pagans, and you're a pagan. Keep your mouth shut in my class. And I'm like, <laughs> Okay, like, all right. Um, it was just a great moment. And again, him, him and I had a great relationship. And I think uh, if you knew Father Donahue, you would say, you kind of got to know the spirit that it came in. Uh, but you know, Catholic school and the priests, they don't exactly play by the same rules that maybe the public school <laughs> teachers play by. But my mom fought for me. She prayed and she fought and she taught and she apologized and she apologized and she apologized and she, apologized and she prayed and she fought. And she had four boys to fight for. And here's what I found is that first generation Christians, they do this. They get the urgency in, 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 a, in a different way than those who inherit the faith, maybe from their parents or their grandparents. There's a different level of fight. But here's the deal. My generation, the second generation, uh, this is where I can take for granted what my mom fought for in me. It's very easy for me as a second-generation Christian to stand in front of you or just to live my life and say, I'm I'm a good guy, I read the Bible, I serve, my kids are just going to catch this thing through osmosis, it's going to be lovely. And then we shared with you this quote last week and um, really found this to be um, profoundly true, is that what one generation assumes, the second neglects and the third rejects. We see this all all throughout scripture. In fact, um, problem, um, after Abraham, and even that's a shady example, there seems to be not one single instance where a man's faith is passed on to the third generation, let alone rarely the second generation. That this reality of taking this thing called the faith and giving it to our children so that they own it powerfully and they're not just assuming it and then neglecting it, um, for them to own this thing, right? You can't find it, which is kind of sad and scary because we open up the Bible now and it's almost like the Bible is saying, this thing called the handing off of the faith, it's not assumed. It has to be fought for. It has to be. In fact, um, this principle actually plays itself out in the business world. Last week, a friend of mine came up to me and he said, did you know that there are um, books and papers and seminars um, written on family businesses that fail in the third generation. And so the stats are that if you own a family business, there's a 30% chance that that family business will make it intact to the second generation, and only a 10% chance that your family business will make it to the third generation before that third generation owner tanks it completely. Isn't that interesting? That there's something that happens for the entrepreneur who builds and he fights for this business and then you give it away and there's this entitlement, this this thing that if you don't work hard for it, you don't have an ownership over it. And that's sort of what the faith is like for many people. And many of you in this room, you are very well aware of this reality. Your mom and dad might have been the first generation Christians and they fought for this thing and they kind of just... You know, like, you, or you kind of just assume that this thing's going to get handed off, and I'm just here to tell you, uh, if you're going to have a familial legacy that brings glory to God, you have to fight for it. And I want you to hear me. If you're not fighting for it, it will likely not be handed down with the level of intentiona- intentionality and clarity that you want. So, for those of you new, let's define legacy. We've defined legacy in two ways. Number one, um, your legacy is the dominant narrative of your life. This is the story told at Christmas and Thanksgiving after you've passed away. Um, These are the narratives of your life. Unfortunately, the people who control your stories control your public legacy. But more importantly, what I really want to focus on today is going to be the second aspect of legacy. And this is going to be the impact of your life on another soul. So this reality that what you do, the decisions you make, they're going to reverberate for generations and generations. That us, we here right now, we are the accumulation of thousands of major decisions made by our ancestors that we right here are now making decisions that we're going to hand off for generations and generations. And so what we found is this flashlight principle that our legacies are like flashlights. They're most, they have the most power at their source, but very quickly dissipate over time, which is why we need to be more like lasers, which are structured very differently, and they take light and they focus it in one direction with extreme power and with extreme clarity, and it has to be created. It doesn't just happen. And so we said we want our legacies to be like lasers and not like flashlights. And so we found here number two is that it's the last impact of your life on another soul. Today, we're gonna focus on your familial legacy, your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids. And we really wanna help you, no matter what stage in life you're at, to rethink this thing and live with intentionality, which gives us or brings us to the two ingredients for a legacy. Number one, it's intentionality. Great legacies will never ever, ever, ever happen on accident. That if you are not choosing your legacy, you will not have a godly legacy. Let me say it like this. You're going to have a legacy. Uh, That is going to happen. The decisions of your life, the story of your life, and the impact of your life on souls will, will exist. The question is, will you have a legacy that brings God the most amount of glory and that magnifies Jesus Christ? You will not have a legacy that brings God maximum glory and magnifies Jesus if you are living your life on accident. Great legacies are chosen, and they have to be fought for. That's number one. Number two is what makes a great legacy is long-term obedience. That it's something that starts now, but you have to play this thing out for a lifetime. Now, does this mean you're going to be perfect? Please say, no, no, it's not this. that's not the issue here. What this does mean, though, is that your legacy is not just formed and finalized in the first half of your life. Um, What you do in the last half of your life, particularly in how you die, solidifies your legacy once and for all. So no matter where you're at in your life stage, you right now are in a position where you are making enormous decisions that will impact your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandchildren. And what we said last week is that it does not matter if you are 85 years old. There is nothing more powerful than I can think of than an 85-year-old man or woman repenting, making restitution, personally owning their failures to a younger generation. It's an unforgettable and powerful experience. What's crazy is you think about guys like the Apostle Paul, uh, even though they murdered Christians and did terrible things, when we tell their legacy, that is not a part of their legacy. Their legacy is about what they did in faithfulness for Jesus even after these incredibly long and destructive seasons in their life. So open up your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. As Craig and I um, racked our brains around what text to use for this sermon series, this particular one, we really wanted to find an encouraging example. You know what the problem was? We couldn't find one. (laughs) Like this is the story of scripture. Moms and dads who are not seeing their faith Make it to the third generation. In fact, when you just open up the Bible, it's a story told over and over again. The dads, the moms assume it, and the generation that receives it assumes it and then neglects it, and then the following generation ultimately rejects it. This is the pattern. So what's going to happen this morning is is I want to share with you a completely unnecessary unnecessary story in David's life. I mean, this event did not need to happen. Now then what I want to do is just encourage you and give you some tools to put in your tool belt as dads, moms, grandmas, grandpas, great-grandparents that you can take with you and God willing, um, with intentionality, start to shape the legacy that you're going to leave for the generations that follow you. And so first I want to go back in time before we get to 2 Samuel 11. I want to bring you back to David, the shepherd boy in the shepherd's field. Now there's some things that we all remember about the young David. Maybe he was a teenager. We knew that David loved God. We knew that David was the man who, or a young man who had a heart after God. He obeyed God in the quiet places. When no one was looking and it was just him and God, it's like David believed to the core of his being that God cared what he did and was always with him. That there was this integrity, there was a courage to David. This kid, he could face lions and giants when you read the story, it's like his voice didn't even quiver. There was something unique about this young guy. He was a poet. He was a musician. And he wrote this poetry that made much of God. It was so candid. It was so honest about the human struggle. And it culminated in giving God much glory. This, this kid would play the harp. He would play his musical instruments for King Saul, who seemed to be possessed or infected with some kind of demon. And, and, and David's music was blessed by God. It just brought this peace over Saul's life. David was a blessed young man and he loved God. And then we find him in this story. And the question is, what happened? And then what happens in this story, what you may not realize, this story takes place um, right in the middle of his reign. And you read the story of David, the first 20 years of his story. It's good. God's with him. God's blessing him. Everything's great. He's winning battles. It's good and great and yay, yay, yay. And then you get to this one hinge point in his life, this one moment. And literally, there is almost no good things that happen to David from this point forward. He spends his entire life cleaning up the mess of this one story, this one person, this one incident. And you know what her name is? Bathsheba. Ugh. Right? You're like... You got to imagine, he just looks back, and he's like, if I could take back one thing in my life that was this hinge point in my life that completely altered my destiny and my family legacy, this is it. I'm going to tell you, this event ruined him. Now, David had a kingly legacy. He had some other legacies that were passed on, but I want you to hear me. Because of this one event, his familial legacy was trashed and ruined to degrees that none of us, I think, probably uh, would ever wish upon our worst enemies. What happened is that this young David slowly dissipated. Uh, his character slowly dissipated over the course of his life. And so I want to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. We'll start here. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, would a king go out to battle in the winter? The answer is no, it's cold. They don't have the same kind of gear that we do. So they wait until the spring and the kings go out to battle. Is David a king? The answer is Yes, where's David supposed to be? In battle, good. David sent Joab, good, and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, which they should have done. You wanna talk about a just war? The Ammonites had humiliated David's men, were just asking for it. And David, I believe, was obligated before God to obliterate these people. Here's the problem, the next line. Here's what it says. But David remained at Jerusalem, where is the king supposed to be? On the front lines of battle. This is not the day of presidents who sit in a chair. This is the day of warrior kings who got down with their men, led on the front lines. This is a day of manly men and warriors. This is not like our, our kings of today that are dressed in pomp and circumstance and point their finger and then other people go. This is a day where the king is supposed to be fighting with his men on the front lines. Now at this point the reader if you're reading this the reader knows something is off here. And so if you've been reading his story like David is the hero right David's doing all these great things David's godly he's winning he's accomplishing he's killing a lot of people who deserve to die and you get to this point and if you are paying attention let's say you don't know what's about to happen here's what you should be thinking huh that's not like the David I know the David I know was a man of integrity and character. He was a warrior. Something's happening here. Well, verse two, it happened. Love that line. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch, you know what he's doing? He's taking a nap. What's he supposed to be doing? Shedding blood, right? That's what he's supposed to be doing. And he was walking on the roof of the king's house, bored, not in battle that he saw from the roof, a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. You remember that line in James chapter one, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by what? His own desires. Something is going unchecked inside of David. You You gotta realize this. David didn't wake up one moment and do this thing. Uh, Something was happening slowly in his character over a period of time. Things were unraveling and dismantling. And so here's what happens in verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, I want to know who the one is, by the way, because this one is like God's little gift to spare him. And of course, David, because of his increasing hard heart, um, blows off the one, but says, Is this not Bathsheba? the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So at this point, here's what, sh- here's what should be happening. You're the reader. And you're like, David, don't do it. David, don't bite. David, please don't do it. David, walk away. David, you're better than this. David, be a Joseph. Remember when Potiphar's wife was pursuing David sexually and then um, Joseph was uh, pursuing David, pursuing Joseph sexually. They weren't even alive. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That's what Joseph said. Like you're begging for David to pull out his inner Joseph and it doesn't happen. Now, a couple of things you got to notice. Number one, Bathsheba comes from upper-class blood. Uh, if you don't know genealogies and names, this might just get right by you, but here's what you need to know. Um, Eliam uh, is Bathsheba's father, and he is also one of the mighty men. Uh, David had this crew of 37 men who were fierce warriors who were loyal to God, Israel, and the king, and they would put their lives at jeopardy like that to protect uh, and to serve God and the king. I mean, this was their life mission. Fearless warriors who devoted their entire lives out of fidelity to King David. And so here's what we find, first of all, Bathsheba is the daughter of one of the mighty men. Not only that, did you know that Uriah, her husband, is also one of David's mighty men? It's like David, okay, we just pause for a moment. Um, This is not just some nameless, faceless girl. This is personal. This is like family, okay? This is somebody that you have Great friendships with their family. Not only this, but um, Ahithophel, uh, her grandfather was David's closest counselor. Do you see how deep this goes? She's not just a pretty girl. She's not just a pretty girl. She is the wife of one of his most loyal servants and warriors. She's the daughter of one of his most loyal servants and warriors. And she's the granddaughter of one of his most loyal servants Do you see how vile this is becoming? The text is showing you the depth of the sin, and it's only gonna get worse. The second thing you need to know is because of who she was married to, she is only about one to 200 feet away from David's roof because David is the king, he's higher. Um, The distance between this roof and where Bathsheba was likely bathing um, was probably the distance-ish from here to the front doors of the church. When these doors are open and I'm standing here, I can see whose face is walking in the door. I have visual clarity. And so here's the deal. I don't think that David was completely unaware of who this might have been, but even if he was, the moment these names are dropped, what should David have done? Turned around, walked away, this is trouble. So, verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. She came to him, and he lay with her. Just watch the verbs. Sent, took, came, lay. Done. Over. Over. Now, here, here's the interesting part. Um, many scholars, and I fully agree with them, and cannot see any other way outside of this, will say that David raped Bathsheba. And I 100% agree. Because there seems to be no compliance on her end. She seems, as the story unfolds, to be incredibly broken about what happened to her husband. Um, it seems that she has... No capacity, which is understandable to say no, when the king in this state of mind, the man who has shed blood, who can with, speak with a word and have you executed, calls you to himself, you submit. Now, whether or not he forcefully put himself on her, whether it was active or passive rape, is irrelevant. Very, it's very hard to find any other category when you look at the full scope of this narrative that this was not rape. So he sent, and he took, and then they, she came, and he lay. Verse four goes on, and now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. You may be wondering if you're reading this, why is the author concerned about her menstrual cycle? Because under law, you are not allowed, a husband and a wife are not allowed to have sex during a menstrual period, or catch this, for the week after. Um, there's was called a period of uncleanness. I think it's actually strategic for God to put this law into place because that moment when they would come back together would be when the woman is the most fertile. So it's interesting that God puts into the law um, guidelines around sexuality that increase and prioritize uh, multiplication and fertility. Isn't that interesting? But here's the point. Uh, The author wants you to know not only did David violate her, not only did David violate his loyal relationships, uh, but he also is completely neglecting the basics of the law. David cannot say, well, I didn't know that. (laughs) Every married man knew the rules. And at this point, you are watching David, his character, being revealed on full display, and here's what you should be asking. How did this happen? This is not the David I know. In verse 5, and she conceived, and she sent and told David. She says three words the whole time, and this is it. I am pregnant. That's it. Ed Robinson, who is a a great preacher, he was teaching a sermon and used an illustration of a, a man who left his wife for his secretary. And he has this powerful quote. Here's what he said. The man who walks out of fellowship with God walks on the edge of an abyss. The man who walks out of fellowship with God walks on the edge of an abyss. And David would have said probably... I'm fine. I've got it under control. That will never happen to me. I would never do something like that. Which, by the way, everyone on the edge of the abyss, what do they say? I got under control. I'll be fine. The problem is, if you're already on the edge, you're way too close. The man who walks out of fellowship with God walks on the edge of the abyss. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, commander, send me Uriah, the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. Uh, now, we're going to stop the story at this point. I'll tell you what happens in case you don't know. Um, David um, has Uriah come back and to talk to him. Awkward conversation, wouldn't you say? Um, and uh, he says, hey, I just wanted to bring you home. I'm really grateful for your service. Good job, buddy. Why don't you just go make love to your wife and then go back to the battlefield? Hoping that he'd go back home and he would make love to his wife, and then everybody would believe from here on out that the baby is Uriah's. Ah, oh, no harm, no foul. So Uriah, of course, being a much better man than David, basically says this. How, how could I go home and lay with my wife when my men are on the field? I will not do that. I would never do that to my men. Send me back. So David's like, obviously, in a quandary, because he's like, wow, this guy's got character. Maybe I should be more like him. <laughs> um, so David sends word to Joab and basically says, hey, I want you to put um, Uriah on the very front lines of the next battle. And you know what's going to happen to Uriah when he's on the front lines of the battle? Absolutely, 100%, you're going to die. This is it. No other option. I mean, this this guy is going to get killed. And you know who's not going to be on the front lines of the battle? One of David's mighty men. This was a really weird request for Uriah to get. Uriah left, and then he gets word of this and thinks, what did I do to him that he would put me in a position where I would die? Do you see how vile this is getting? We're not done. This this is murder, by the way. So let me, be, let me be clear. The two most vile things a human being can do to another human being are rape and murder, period. The only worst things you could do to another human being is mass murder or raping multiple. There's nothing worse. Like these are horizontal, human to human. These are the worst of the worst. And you gotta be asking again. How did we go from the shepherd's boy, shepherd boy in the shepherd's field with a heart after God, standing toe to toe with Goliath, declaring the promises of God to this, to literally being the worst of the worst. Like this should plague your brain as you're reading this. And this is just a reminder to me, we have no idea what we're capable of. You're dancing on the abyss. I would never, you have no idea what you're capable of. Neither do I. And I pray that I don't have to step towards the edge of the abyss to see what's really in the dark places of my heart. So let's take a moment here. We're talking about family legacy. I want to just give you a snapshot of the next 20 years of David's life and how this singular event reverberated to his children and to his grandchildren. Absalom rejected David as king, stole David's throne. Throne turned Israel against David, slept with David's concubines on the roof. The reason that's important is because where did David spot Bathsheba and then make love to her? On the roof, right? This thing is coming back to David, right? Could you imagine your son doing any of this to you? Not only that, Bathsheba's baby died. Tamar, daughter, raped by her brother Amnon. Like father, like son. Amnon. Raped Tamar, murdered by his own brother Absalom. Solomon took David's concubines, started worshiping false gods, even the fire gods Moloch, where you would take your firstborn son and you would sacrifice them on a fire before the gods. Right? This is how drastically his wives changed his heart and his theology. Rehoboam, who is David's grandson, Solomon's son, divided the nation and is known as evil and godless. Well, one generation assumes, the second generation neglects Solomon, and the third generation rejects Rehoboam. I mean, there's nothing you can do, candidly, that is going to make your children believe, but there are some things you can do that will make them not believe. There are some things that you can do that will pretty much ensure the faith is not going to be passed down by you. And by God's grace, maybe he'll bring in the church or another believer to intervene in your lack of passing it down. But what one generation assumes, the second neglects and the third rejects. David's story, honestly, it's like so many stories today. It is so unnecessary. Like this does not need to be our familial legacy. And and we have these massive hinge points, these massive decisions that are going to make our lives go one way or the other. We don't have to make the decisions that David did. And this is why we're preaching this series is because we look and we see family after family after family, and there are all of these crucial decisions. And what we're finding is that there are some families who are handing down a familial legacy that brings Jesus glory and magnifies God, and they're doing it with intentionality, but there are a lot who are not. And that even the ones who start well, it's so easy to go on cruise control and autopilot and cross your fingers and hope that the truth you put into them in the first 10 years of their life is gonna last through junior high, high school, and college. It's so easy to stop the fight. So at the end of David's life, um, He is about to die. Uh, There's this coup and this other person takes over the kingdom and then he gets Solomon and Bathsheba. And he's like, no, Solomon's going to be king. So he gets Solomon, he's about to die and he gives him some final wisdom, right? And this wisdom, I honestly, I'm just surprised when I read it. So the first part is good. So let's read the good part. We'll be encouraged together. David to Solomon about to die. Solomon's about to be king. He says this, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. Good. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimony as it's written in the law of Moses. Are we, are we good? This is good. Obey God. Read the Bible. Study it and do it. Awesome. We're, why? That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying... If your sons pay close attention to their way and walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Awesome. Are we on the same page? Like, yay, David, now too little too late, okay? That's part of the problem. You're an old man and now you're having the conversation. There's a theme in 1st and 2nd Samuel, by the way. It starts with Eli, goes to Jesse, goes to Saul, goes ultimately to David. And it's a story of generations of fathers to sons. It weaves its way through the entire book of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. Okay? And so what we're picking up here is this really important theme. And, and, and so now, listen to what David says. You're about to die. Okay? You got your son. He's going to be king. Moreover, you also know what Joab did to me how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner and Amasa, whom he killed. at therefore, to your wisdom, and do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. And no, we're not done. Then he says, have okay, but deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai. But there is also with you Shimei, who cursed me with a grievous curse. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him. But just in case you don't know, I'm going to tell you. Um, and you shall bring his he- gray head down with blood to Sheol. Like, is this the kind of David that you remember in the shepherd's field? Like, do you guys see the difference? He's a bitter old man who takes his last breath to say, oh, yeah, obey God's word, but listen to me. I want to spend the majority of my words telling you to take vengeance on my enemies. Like, this is not okay. David is fundamentally broken. And he spent the last 20 years of his life distracted and not raising his kids. Oh, work is busy. Oh, I got to deal with the the hard child. Oh, And his kids got the brunt of his life, and his legacy shows that. David's family legacy, it was just unnecessary. Now, let's get maybe a little happier. Sounds good. Let's go to point number two. The hinges before the hinge. I want to answer a couple questions here. What happened to David? David neglected the small hinge points before the big one. Uh, David had clear directives in God's word. There were four things David and every single king of Israel were told. There are four decisions that every king must make. They're the foundations. They're the hinges before the hinge, okay? These are pivotal, life-altering decisions that every king had to make. And I want to show you what David did, and I want to show you why what happened with Bathsheba didn't just happen in a day out of nowhere. Number one, Deuteronomy 17, kings do not acquire a lot of horses. Okay, you can read the text, He must not acquire many horses for himself. Are we clear on this one? Why would God tell a king to not build a strong, functional military with the most strategic battle weapon, a horse with a rider, right? Because here's what God's trying to say. I will protect you. I will be your defender. And so what we find here is uh, in the passages before, you start reading through 1 and 2 Samuel, and here's what you find. David starts making these little decisions that if you are a Jewish reader reading First and Second Samuel, here's what should be happening in your brain. When you see that he is acquiring many horses, you should say to yourself, wait a minute, I thought God's law said not to do that. Why is David doing it? Just a little hinge. It's a little thing, right? But number two, kings, do not acquire many or multiple wives. Some have said this is the first restriction against polygamy ex- explicit. Um, how it's translated, whether it's multiple or many, I tend to say multiple meaning more than one. But here's the deal. Do not, a king is forbidden from acquiring multiple wives. Why? Because wives were a physical sign of a treaty made with pagan foreign nations. So they felt like, oh, we don't know if we're going to be saved, so why don't we make a treaty with this nation? And then here's what would happen. Those pagan women would bring their pagan gods into God's house, and they would powerfully influence God's kings. And God's like, no, there will not be multiple wives. There will not be these allegiances and alliances with other pagan nations. They will only impact you negatively. But then you start reading. David had eight wives and ten concubines. David, wait a minute. I thought, wait a minute. You're not supposed to be doing that. Number three, kings do not acquire much silver or gold. And then you start reading David's life, and he's acquiring silver, and he's acquiring gold, and he's acquiring land. And and the the reader who understands the law around the king should be saying this. Why is he getting rich? I thought the kings weren't supposed to accumulate massive amounts of wealth like this. And what's interesting is what David did tenfold, Solomon did a hundredfold, right? You just see that the sins of one generation get amplified and magnified to the next generation. But then there's a positive. There's one thing that the kings were supposed to do, and I really appreciate this. God said, kings, do write, study daily, and obey God's word. Watch this text. This is interesting. He shall write for himself. Do you see this grammar? Flip through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's a lot of words. And one of the commands for the king is that he would open up the Bible and he would pen a copy for himself. Every word. He could never say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know that was in there. David, you wrote every stinking word. You know it. And not only that, but this has to be approved by the, Le- Le- by the Levitical priests. It has to meet the standards of the Levitical priests who are there to preserve the transmission of the law with clarity from one generation to the next. Isn't that an interesting like, command to give the king? You need to know this thing inside and out, backwards and forwards. And it shall be with him. And he shall read in it on Sundays when the priests preach and that's about it. And then he can just ride off of his Bible knowledge that the pastor gave him. Is that, is that what we're saying here? No, he shall read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and these statutes and doing them. Everything that happened with Bathsheba was already happening for years. That's what most people don't know about the David and Bathsheba moment. But those smaller hinges paved the way for the hinge moment that he could never undo. Which is why these basic foundational acts of obedience are small hinges. And we think it's just this, it's just that, it's just this, it's just that, but they accumulate. And I just want to go back again and say, you and I have no idea what we're capable of. But it doesn't need to be this way. Now the next question, what are the Christians' hinges before the hinge? Because last time I checked, none of you are kings. And if you are, I have a lot of questions for you because that'd be cool. Um, But we're just normal... Dudes and ladies, just doing life, trying to be faithful to God, going to work, raising our kids, loving our grandkids—five things that I think are so foundational that for some of you, you're gonna you're gonna hear these things, and you're gonna be like, "Eh, that's fine. I got it. I got. I'm fine. I'm fine. I got the one-on-ones." But let me be let me be really straight. As I get to interact with a lot of Christians, mm-hmm. there are basics that are not happening. If these foundations are not happening, you will not have the preventative measures in place to protect yourselves from the inevitable hinge moment that's coming. So number one, some of these again, you're gonna be like, no duh. Daily spend time with God. As I talk to most men, this is a significant challenge in their life. And yet, if if someone were to say, what are like the basics that a Christian does? Like, I know that salvation isn't by being good. I know that it's by grace through faith. But like, what are the fundamentals? Like, here's where you start. You daily open up God's word, and you pray, and you get on your face, and you say, give me wisdom, give me knowledge. Um, God, I want to intercede for my family, my friend. Like, whatever it takes, you get on your face before God. Why? Because the Christian understands the powerful gravity and weight of sin. This is a preventative measure in our life, and yet, here's what happens. Here's how you know you're teetering toward the edge of the abyss. Eh, I read my Bible twice a week now. Uh, maybe once a week. All right, Sunday's at church. Uh, I'll, listen to, I'll listen to stuff in the car. That'll be my substitute. And here's how you know you're on the edge of the abyss. You're walking closer and closer because the most basic fundamental that college or high school you or that you when you first came to Christ would look at you now and would say, get your face in the Bible, dude, dudette, girl, boy, whatever. Like get your face in there. Why are you neglecting it? You think you're so smart? David wrote down the whole law. Look what he turned out. You need to be in it because it informs you and transforms you and changes you. That's number one. Number two, go to church. The average evangelical goes to church 2.5 times per month, and it's not because of travel or vacations, by and large. That is a huge aspect of it. But this is like this simply thing where God, God is like, here's what Christians do. We come hell or high water. We worship. We gather with God's people. Here's what fuelings do. Fuelings worship God with God's people once a week. Why? Because that's what Christians do. Because this is fundamental to our connection with God, to worship, to being under authority. This is a good thing, being with God's people. We go to church. So I'm going to hand down a familial legacy. Like, if these foundations aren't in place, your kids and your grandkids will see us. They're one on one. Number three, I serve weekly. I don't care if you serve at church, some other church. We have people serve at Village. You go to different churches and people at Village serve other churches. Just give your life away. You're saying, you know, you're teetering on the edge. I'm too busy to serve weekly. It's like an hour, like every Monday night. Like, oh, I don't know if I could really do that. I just don't have the leverage or time for it, right? You're teetering on the edge. Like Christians serve. That's what we do. We give our life away. Number four. We give a lot of stuff away. I don't know if you know that, but this is what a Christian does. Christians are like givers. We find our stuff, our money, our time, and we just give stuff away. Why? Because that's what Christians do. We don't have a lot. What are the people in the Bible who don't have a lot but love Jesus do? Give it away. The Macedonians, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We give it away. And if some of you are like, they just want my money, then give it to another church. I don't care if you think we want your money. I just want to know that the antidote to narcissism, which is serving, and the antidote to greed, which is giving, are daily, weekly habits and patterns that are put into your life to kill the sin inside of you. And when you stop serving, you know what you become? More selfish. When you stop giving, you know what you become? More greedy, more self-reliant, more obsessed with money. Again, I don't care where you give it. You got extra stuff. This Christmas, we needed four cars. And so one person uh, gave a car to the church and we said, all right, well, we need three more. Let's see if they come in. I think it was, we just said, let's pray about it and see what happens. And then all the cars that we needed came through. It's like crazy. Why? Because people are like, I got an extra car. I'll give it away. I got this. I'll give it away. We just give stuff away. Do you know that? Do you know how much stuff like between parents and our church are just given away? Clothes, toys, this. Th- I mean, th- just Give. You have extra stuff, you give it away. You got extra time, you bring people over. After church, you can go home and be by yourself, or you can give your time away. Take a broke single college student out to dinner. You just give. Fundamental. But the reason this isn't a part of most Christians' lives is because we're stepping near the edge of the abyss. Number five. Get in a group. You're like, what is what does a group have to do with this? The stats on people engaging in groups are unbelievable. Um So I want to get the exact numbers so that I actually don't like lie to you in the middle of a sermon. If you attend any kind of group, Bible study, small group, I don't care what it is, you are 41% more likely to have a Christian friend outside of that group. Um, If you're not in a group, your Christian influence goes down drastically for the majority of people. Uh, If you're in a group, you're 30% more likely to serve weekly someplace. Actually, the, the experience of being in a group transforms your social life outside of the group, statistically speaking, and it actually propels more people, statistically, a third more people, to actually serve more regularly. People who um, go to a group, um, if they don't go to a group, let's say it this way, uh, the chances of them staying in a church go down to like 20 or 25 percent, something like that. It's crazy that there's something that happens when a person, commits their schedule to be in some kind of small group or group, and it changes how much they read the Bible. They're 68% more likely to read the Bible daily if they're in a group. Isn't that crazy? Like one commitment that you make changes your fellowship, your commitment to God's word, your mission, and how you perceive serving in the church. In fact, I would say of all of these things, if you want to start one place, that will, will just say, fast forward the rest of it, get in a group, and that will change things pretty drastically. Question number three, how can I be intentional about leaving a godly familial legacy. Now, some of you, I mean, first service, so many unique situations, so many unique familial situations, grandparenting situations. Here's my challenge to you. Get into a group and process this with your group. Ask them the questions that are, you, that are relative to your unique situation and what it means to process and hand off a godly legacy. What I want to do is give you parameters. And I'm not going to dig deep because I'll never be able to give you what you need. So I'm going to give you the parameters and then you can take these to your groups and to your family and deal with them. Great familial legacies are chosen through three things. Number one, great godly legacies are chosen by what you model. It's chosen by what you model. What you model in your relationships with God, with your spouse, with your friends. Uh, How you handle money, I believe, is one of the most important legacies you can hand off to the next generation. Unbelievable. I grew up, and my mom, she would say to me, over and over and over again, never go into debt. Don't go into debt, don't get credit card debt. The only kind of debt you can get is a mortgage and student loans. But other than that, no debt, no debt. Now, I don't think she would actually say the student loan debt, given what's happening with prices now, but uh, now she would say mortgage debt, that's it. And then pay it off quick. No credit card debt, so help me God. I think I heard this saying, I don't know, between a hundred and a thousand times growing up. And that massively informed how I view money. Um, Church, what you model. What you model sets an example. If we always have an excuse not to be there, we always have an excuse not to engage, right? Um, You can be here, but not be here. You know what I'm saying? Some of you are taking a nap right now. It's cool. You're like, it's past the 42-minute mark. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I've got three hours left, so just relax. All right. Don't worry. We're almost done. Godly legacies, great family legacies, are chosen by what you model and by what you teach. Um, if, if you model it and that's it, you're the generation that assumes. If you teach it, you're the generation that fights. This is where the line is drawn. If you're a single and you're like, I don't have a kid, this isn't important. You're called to have spiritual children, people that you pour your life into and mentor and you are called to model and to teach for them as well. That is a biblical theme, moms and dads. That's what we do. We give our kids access to godly men and women that they can also model and teach and hand off a faith legacy. We teach them about God. We teach them about character, who God has created them to be, because let's be honest, little kids are wicked little sinners, right? And they need to be dismantled completely and put back together. They need to be taught discipline. They need to be, to be taught how to control their bodies and their minds so they can control it to bring God glory. I teach them how to do chores and how to clean their rooms. Uh, I, I read a stat, which probably informs me more than i Care to admit that kids who can clean their rooms and have regular chores, their success rates in college and in life are like, it's something like 40% higher in all these metrics they use to study. I would measure it. And I was like, my kids are doing chores. <laughs> Let me tell you, they will not be entitled brats. So help me God. Um, Skills, Basic life skills. This is what parents do. We teach our kids, our boys, and our girls to do the things that are going to be required of them, right? But all of this takes intentionality. I mean, I got to tell you, every morning I I get to drive my kids to school. It's a 20-minute ride. And every morning I teach them a word, a concept, an illustration, a story about me, my wife, God, love, all of it. And I make them tell it back to me. And and we have crazy conversations. My four-year-old is engaging in some really deep conversations. And he's trying (laughs) to... We were, I was sitting there, and he was trying to understand about men marrying men and gay marriage, right? And so he's asking me questions. as Barack Obama, we watching a documentary on his legacy, and he's like asking questions about gay marriage. And he's like, okay, so this can happen, but this can't. I mean, my four-year-old is building categories for what's happening, and I'm taking these teachable moments. And then my eight-year-old was watching the same thing, and I said, "El, come here, I want to sit down and talk with you. Here's the difference between this and this, and here's how we think about politics and God's heart. And I'm like, say it back to me, everything. Like we just take these moments and we redeem them. And this is what it means. We read scripture. We pray at meals. There are things that we do on purpose because we want to fight for their hearts and their minds and for the next generation. But not only that, godly legacies are chosen by what you schedule. Uh, You guys can figure this out in your um, community groups, in your personal life, but the things you do daily, how you spend time in God's word, how you pray together, the things you do weekly, going to church, monthly, giving, different things like that, serving in different things, special events and projects that come up, seasonally, um, Christmas and Easter, how you hyper engage the church, annually mission trips, like if it's open and available and it's plausible for your kids to go, you send them to risky places because we're trying to teach them courage and faith and to get out of themselves and not be stuck on screens and games. The first two can happen randomly and haphazardly, but this is where you schedule it. Because greatness always happens by scheduling it. Nobody ever gets ripped haphazardly, right? Oh, look at me. I'm shredded. It just happened, right? No, it didn't. It happened because you scheduled it. I'm a doctor. How'd that happen? I randomly went to class, randomly studied, randomly came out with these techniques. No. Greatness in every aspect of life is fought for and scheduled, Period. So if you want to be a haphazard and teach, you'll do good things, you'll do better than most. But if you want to fight, you go from modeling to teaching to scheduling, that's where your life will be transformed. That's where the legacy from one generation to the next is going to be fought. That will be the front lines. The front lines will be your busy schedule and your distracted brain and your phone versus the legacy of your family and the faith being handed down. That's where the battle is. Should we be done? Almost. Let me just close. Two encouragements. Number one, for some of you, you are already David. The moment, the, the hinge, the irreversible moment that changes the entire trajectory of your life, you have already been there. Um, I would like to contend for you that David never recovered because there was not full repentance, restitution, with humility over the long haul. He had pieces. But I I would contend with you that the reason David's life spiraled out of control and he could never get control and his character continued to dissipate was because he did not have repentance, restitution with humility over the long haul. That's hard. Some of you, the difference between changing the trajectory of your legacy and just going on autopilot right now the difference is going to be whether or not you can humble yourself, repent, and make restitution. That'll be, that'll, be the, that'll be the difference. It's hard. The second thing I want to encourage you with is when you read Scripture, everyone fails. But Enoch, he's this guy in Genesis who apparently got taken up into heaven, so like, cra- crazy story, but like, okay, he's fine. But everybody else fails miserably. All the heroes of Scripture, failures. They are just terrible people. I mean, you read Abraham, I don't want to be friends with the guy. They're not great people all the time. They do really terrible things. And yet, and yet, God uses them and he uses them to magnify himself and to bring glory to Jesus. It gives me a lot of encouragement to know, like I have done a lot of dumb things. And yet God is just about redeeming our stupidity and bringing great things out of them that bring him much glory. I cannot undo all the collateral damage from my bad decisions, and neither can you, but I can allow God to come back into my life and to start to make right the things in my heart and hopefully in other people's hearts that are wrong. What I love about this is that every person is a failure except for Jesus because he is the hero. And every single failure, I think this is the reason why God did this is because every single person who failed so miserably, you're reminded in each of their failures that it is Jesus who gets all the glory. Because when we're trying to do our best, we just struggle. And then he comes in and he is able to save us thoroughly and totally remake and redo us. It's powerful. So yeah, maybe you have massively failed. You have that much more opportunity to give glory and honor to Jesus Christ. What I want it's for my legacy. I mean, there's a part of me, let me be honest, that wants people to be like, oh, he was a good guy, he was a good pastor, he was a good dad, he did all these things, right? Here's what the heart of my heart really wants. I want people to look, I want my kids to look at my failures and my successes and to say his failures brought much glory to Jesus because he humbly owned them and his successes brought much glory to Jesus because he gave away the credit. And that when I die, that my legacy that I hand off to my kids would be about making much of Jesus and magnifying him. That as they tell my story, they're telling the story of Jesus and what he did in my life. And that my memorial service is filled with stories of my life that end in, so let me tell you about Jesus. Like That would be, that would be the dream of my life. And then my kids, because I fight for them. They're going to get this faith. And they're not going to be that second generation that just assumes it. And they're going to fight. And they're going to raise a bunch of entitled brats who one day they're going to fight for them, right? They're going to fight. That would be like my dream familial legacy to not let one generation pass by me that has stopped fighting. But if I stop fighting, that's when that generation's going to assume. And when that generation assumes, the next will neglect and then three generations away from having grandchildren and great-grandchildren who completely neglect the faith, by and large. That's unnecessary. It's unnecessary. So Village, I want to take a moment. I want to pray for you. Um, again, I wish there was a positive story because that would have been way more fun to be like, yay, you can do it, right? <laughs> but we, get, we got to preach what the scriptures give us. So let me take a moment. Let me pray for you, and then we'll celebrate communion. Father, are really well aware of um, so many failures, honestly here and in scripture. And seems to be a very common thread. And I want to thank you that you are good, holy, faithful, righteous, flawless, merciful, and gracious. And that in our failures, you shine as being righteous. I want to thank you that Jesus is the hero. And so God, I know that every one of us need to take a next step in some way, lots of information and ideas and Lord, as we see David as a huge warning, God, that's just unnecessary. So Lord, of all the things, whether it's the foundations of things Christians just do or whether or not it's these next steps of modeling and, and teaching and scheduling, God, would you, by your spirit, press on our hearts exactly the next step that we can take? Lord, we can't do all of it at once, but Lord, would you gently encourage each one of us to take that next step or two? Um, Lord, would you give us the boldness to face it? And God, I do pray that at Village Church we would be able to and fight for this next generation, and that we would say, see generations of kids in this church fight for their kids and grandkids, that we would see generations of singles fight for the faith of the kids and grandkids that come through this church. We love you. Uh, we ask all this in the powerful name of Jesus, who's the only one capable of accomplishing it. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.